there. Uh, the rest of us can take our Bibles and open them up to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. Exodus, chapter 25. We're going to begin a series that will last several weeks entitled um, That I May Dwell With Them. It's a series on the tabernacle. So if we want a short series title that you can remember, hey, you went to church today. What did Pastor talk about? The tabernacle. All right, so that's an easy grabber. You can grab that one. But the longer title of the series is That I May Dwell With Them. Uh, It's in Exodus chapter 25, uh, beginning in verse 8. We read um, that God gave them instructions to make a tabernacle that he may dwell with them. So if there's nothing else today that I want you to remember is the purpose of of the tabernacle, that God may dwell among them or with him. So that's found in verse 8. Let's just jump there and um, look at that. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So would you say the second half of that verse with me, please? And that way you'll remember it. That I may dwell among them. So that's what this whole series is going to be about, is looking at the tabernacle with the idea, the big idea is this, that we learn through the tabernacle, the different parts and the pieces and the furniture and the coverings and its location, its setup and so forth, that God desires to dwell with his people. And how that all of these items project forward into time, anticipating one day that Jesus Christ would be the fulfillment Of the tabernacle. Now, our Bibles tell us in Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 44, uh, Stephen is preaching the message and he says, Our fathers had their tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion or the pattern that he had seen. Now, that word in the original, the word fashion or pattern, some of your Bibles use the word pattern, some use the word fashion, is the Greek word uh, for where we get the English word type, meaning an example of. So the tabernacle is going to be a type or an example of something else, something that is greater. So a type is less important than the antitype that comes later, all right? Anti meaning later. And so there are specific rules that the Bible lays down that explains how that we look at the types in Scripture. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. So the bronze serpent was a type of Christ. And so it anticipated a future day when the antitype, which is Jesus, who's greater, would be lifted up. And so the whole purpose of this series is so that you might learn that God desires to dwell with us And we access that dwelling, that life with God, through Jesus. 
And that's going to be the, the point of our message. Now, today I'll have some diagrams and some pictures that, that go along with this. But if we're in Exodus 25 still, uh, look at verse 9. This is further instruction. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern or the type of tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so ye shall make it. And so the furniture, the, the parts, the individual parts of the tabernacle, they also become types. Now, just to give you an example, um, do you remember that Jesus Christ, during his life, he's standing outside the temple as the Jewish people are celebrating Hanukkah. Now, that's not mentioned in the scripture, but that's what they're doing. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Do you remember him saying, I'm the light of the world? He's talking about the piece of furniture called the candlestick. Do you remember when he says, I am the bread of life? Well, he's talking about the bread on the table of showbread. Uh, Romans chapter 3 tells us that he is the propitiation or he is the mercy seat, which is the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. And so each one of these is also a type of Christ or a pattern of Christ. And through that piece of furniture or through these different instruments, the coverings and so forth, we're going to see Christ and we're going to learn how we can have fellowship. Now, the book of Hebrews calls them a shadow of good things to come. Do you know anything about shadows? That most of the time, they're out of proportion, right? So if the sun is low enough, your shadow can be 25 feet long. Wouldn't you want to be 25 feet tall, right? If you're a basketball player, maybe you would, right? But we can do the same thing biblically speaking, in, in preaching and listening to messages, if we try to go into more detail than the scripture assigns to them. We can get things way out of proportion. We can exaggerate things. Uh, many years ago, there was a, a radio Bible personality on family radio. His name was Harold Camping. Do you remember that name, anybody? All right. Um, Mr. Camping would get things way out of proportion, all right? And um, he ended up, in the, in the last years of his life, even denying that there was hell, all right? And so he, he drifted doctrinally. So we can't just make these things say what we want them to say. We've got to stick to the authority of the Scripture, and we can't press details so far that we're exaggerating them and making them say things that they shouldn't say. And so today, what is the purpose of the tabernacle? What is this series going to be about? That God may dwell with them. So we can learn how through the tabernacle to see that God will dwell with us through Christ. Now take your Bibles and let's go over to 1 John uh, chapter 1 and verse 3. 1 John chapter 1 verse 3. 
All right, is it warm and stuffy in here? Okay, so um, Bruce, can you hear me out there? Would you come in and uh, open just a couple of windows? It's a little stuffy in here. Now, I get the extra stuffiness because the baptistry is right behind me, so it feels very oppressive right here where I'm standing. So I figured maybe you're getting it too. All right, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 says that. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write unto you, that your joy may be full. This is a beautiful thing, to know that God dwells with us. There are many people that don't think there is a God. What do we call them? Atheists, all right, or any gods, all right. Then there are people who say, well, if there is a God, he can't be known, and he really doesn't intervene in our lives. What do we call them? Agnostics, all right. And then what does a deist believe, you know? Okay, well, a deist say that there are God or gods, uh, but once again, you really can't know him. There is no central authority in the scripture so, scripture, so they reject the Bible, they reject the prophets. Like Thomas Jefferson, do you know that there's in the Library of Congress the Thomas Jefferson Bible? How many of you have ever heard of that Bible? All right. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Deists do not believe in the supernatural. So he has a New Testament that he compiled, and basically what he did was he took his New Testament, and any miracle that Jesus did, he cut it out. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, he cut it out. Any miracle. So deists don't believe in the supernatural. And so these people would have a hard time relating to this message because they don't believe or understand that God may be known, and that God actually wants to be with you and me. He wants our lives to be touched by his life. And so this is why John 3.16 is so important. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. God can be known God cares, and God wants us to have fellowship with him in the lives. Now, it's very interesting when we go back to Exodus chapter 25, let's turn there, and you might want to just keep a ribbon here for the next few months, and by the time the series is over, you're going to come into church, and like the pull is going to be so strong on the pages of your Bible, it's just going to flop open to the book of Exodus every time you walk through the doors, all right? So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 25, and it covers several chapters. But as we're in this chapter, I want us to note here uh, that God wants us to spend time with him, to know him. But where does it start? Okay, look at verse 22. And there I will meet with thee, and will commune with thee from above the what? The mercy seat. 
from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all the things which I shall give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now, as we approach the tabernacle, we like to think of it um, like this, from an outside view, looking from the outside in. But as God presents the tabernacle, he starts with the innermost room and works his way out. And that shows us God's grace in reaching out to us. God sending his son. God extending fellowship with people. Now think about this for just a moment. This is Exodus chapter 25. What did God give the people in Exodus chapter 20? There's 10 of them. The 10 commandments. What were they doing when God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments? Do you remember? They were having an idolatrous pagan ceremony. They had made a golden calf and were worshiping it, uh, having all kinds of impure activities going on. And yet God desires a relationship with sinful humanity. What goodness, what grace that God shows. Now, this is just an illustration. Um, You see the courtyard, the tent. We'll talk about that. We'll see the gate. Then you see the bronze uh, altar there with the fire on it. Behind that was the uh, brazen laver where they washed and then the tabernacle building proper. Uh, here's a layout. And by the way, I'm going to try to get this into a booklet form for you. Um, I'm just a little slow in my typing, all right? But we'll eventually get it out. But um, so what you see here is uh, uh, north, south, east, and west orientation of the tabernacle. You enter in through the east side, and the first thing you come to from man's perspective is a bronze altar where they had to sacrifice two lambs every day for their sins. And it's interesting. For man's approach, you have to meet God through blood sacrifice. From God starting it on the inside in the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, once a year, blood had to be sprinkled on that to make atonement for sin. So whether you start from God's perspective or you start from man's perspective, to have fellowship with God, you have to deal with sin, either way. And God lays out the requirements of how that has to be done. So, what Mr. Jefferson did was he picked and chose certain sections of Scripture that he would like to adopt. Um, So really, I wouldn't call it necessarily a Bible as much as he was trying to harmonize the Scriptures. But as I was saying earlier in the message, there are certain rules that will govern how we go through the typology, and we'll, we'll look at some of that today. But we just can't pick and choose what we want the Bible to say. Uh, one commentator put it this way. He said, really, it's not so much different than the modern-day so-called cafeteria Christians who pick and choose what portions of the Bible to adopt and what parts to dismiss. 
because Christians are really good at making pretexts out of the Bible to support what they want to think. What a sad, sad way to approach the Bible. God doesn't take your opinion. God doesn't think like you. We have to go through this series the way that God wants us to go through. And so the order of the tabernacle then is presented from the inside, beginning at the Ark of the Covenant, outward by divine grace to meet the human need. Now, let's uh, take our Bibles here and let's look at this uh, first point here. Our fellowship is with the Father. We looked at that in 1 John 1, 3, but now I'd like to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. That's the fourth book in the New Testament. John chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 23 and 24. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a beautiful passage of scripture. Jesus meeting the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the Gentile woman. Jews and Samaritans didn't have anything to do with one another. Men and women didn't have anything to do with one another. So why is Jesus talking to a foreigner? Why is Jesus talking to someone of the opposite gender? Because God initiates love. What a beautiful thing for husbands to learn. Your wife doesn't have to be perfect for you to love her. It's a wonderful thing. Because we're not perfect and God chose to initiate his love for us. So God initiates love. It says here that the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now, there are a lot of people who want to worship God in this world. That's a wonderful thing. But what's not so wonderful is that they don't worship him according to truth. Now, we know the Bible is God's truth, and we have to worship him according to that truth. But you know, we see that God first met with man very early on, on a daily basis. Do you have any idea where mankind and God first met up every day? In the garden. It's interesting. It talks about uh, Adam walking with God each day. The Hebrew word is the Hebrew word derek, which means to make a well-worn path. So, in the garden, the grass was worn down under Adam's feet as he walked and talked with God in fellowship every day. Isn't that interesting? Do we take time to walk with God each day? Or is the grass growing under our feet and through our toes? Okay. Do you take time to spend in fellowship with God? Uh, but not only did he meet Adam in the garden... God met the people in the tabernacle. God met them in the temple. Um, God met us best of all in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus showed us perfectly who the Father is. 
And then we have a place to meet God today. We can meet him in the word. This is what Revelation 3.20 is about. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and will open the door, I will come in and fellowship with him or sup with him and he with me. That verse is not so much an invitation to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you look in context, that's written to the Christians in the church of Laodicea. And he's saying, Christian, let me in. You know our number one problem in Western Christianity, in America, in California, in Bay Area, California? We're just too busy. We exhaust ourselves doing the things that will not matter in eternity. We don't fellowship with God. We don't work with God. Now, I say, didn't say work for God because it's God who's doing the work. And we're working with him, but we're just too busy. And he's like, Christian, please open up. Let me fellowship with you. Let me have intimacy with you, but we're too busy to, to answer the door. Maybe we're a little scared of that. But God initiates fellowship. Now, the second point here is this. Our fellowship is with his son, Jesus Christ. And so that was the second half of 1 John 1, 3. But this comes through the study of Scripture. Take your Bibles and let's go to Luke chapter 24. Luke is the third book in the New Testament. Go to the 24th chapter and look at the 29th verse. All right, so here in uh, Luke chapter 24, uh, we come down to the uh, 27th through the 29th verse. Verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village, whether they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. Jesus was having a meal with two of his disciples. Now, this is a post-resurrection appearance. These two individuals are thinking, Jesus is dead. And they're long-faced. And Jesus, having come out of the grave, he finds these two walking on the road to Emmaus, and he joins them. He says, hey, what's going on, guys? How long have you been around in Jerusalem here recently? Don't you know that Jesus, who we thought the Messiah, we, we thought it was he, but he was killed? And Jesus is like, oh, is that so? Well, could I just share a few thoughts from the Bible with you? And so beginning in verse 27, it says that he took his Old Testament, beginning with Moses. Well, what books of the Bible... Did Moses write? Did he write the book of Exodus? He sure did. And he be, began to expound and to explain 
the things that should happen to him, perhaps for just a moment, he stopped on the mercy seat to explain to them that the Messiah would be the propitiation for their sins. But he took the things of Moses. So can you say that in a shadow kind of way that the gospel was in the first five books of the Bible? Absolutely. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was the father of faith of all those that are justified by faith. And so Jesus began to explain to them. So maybe he took just a few moments to go over the tabernacle with them. As he said, these things pertain to me. But now let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Second Timothy 3.16, we read this, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So when we go through this series in the tabernacle, it's Old Testament. It might seem cumbersome and bog you down in some details. But is that inspired scripture? If God went into so much detail to record it as inspired scripture, do you think that maybe we should pay attention to some of the details of what they can actually mean? Well, I think we should. So fellowship is with the Son. It comes through the study of scripture. And it comes through the symbols of scripture. We've already mentioned the symbols of the bronze serpent and of the mercy seat. But we're going to see Christ portrayed and prefigured, prefigured many times in our study on the tabernacle. And then fellowship with the Son comes through the typology that is found in Scripture. Now, this is why I said I'm going to put this in written form for you, because you're not going to be able to see this, all right? But I'm going to put it up there anyway, all right? Aren't you glad you can see that? Because I can't read that from here. I've got it in my notes, and I can barely read it, all right? But... What I'll hand out to you is this piece of paper, and it will explain to you the rules for typology, that when we use the scriptures and we're looking at types, how we can do them accurately without violating the scripture and making something seem way out of proportion as to way it, that it should be. Here's the first rule. The type and the anti-type should have a natural correspondence or relationship. We're going to see that it's made according to pattern. So there is a natural correspondence. There has to be a historical reality. Was the tabernacle historical reality? Yes, it was. Was Jesus Christ a historical figure? Yes, he was. Um, the type prefigures or heightens the antitype, but the antitype is superior or greater. So is Jesus Christ greater than all of the things of the Old Testament? Absolutely. That's why he opened the disciples' understanding, beginning at Moses. Uh, the type is divinely designed. It's planned by God. When God says, see to it that you make it according to pattern, God had a set of blueprints. And Moses had to follow them exactly as God said. 
And then the type and the antitype are designated such in the New Testament. And we're going to see in our series from the book of Hebrews that definitely the tabernacle, and by the way, the theme of Hebrews is Christ is superior, but they're designated in the scripture as a type. And so I've shown you Acts 7.44, we'll look in the book of Hebrews, that says the tabernacle was a type of Christ. But some people like to take these things and go way beyond, and there's really no natural correspondence between the objects. And so one night I was listening to Harold Camping on the radio, and somehow when Moses met God at the burning bush, he got Jesus Christ on the cross out of the burning bush. I can't get there, okay? I can get the holiness of God, take off your sandals from your feet for the place you're standing in is holy ground. I can get the separation of God, but I don't get salvation at the cross out of the burning bush, all right? So sometimes people like to force it and allegory goes beyond Uh, Sometimes we make things up that have no historical reality. That's why the Book of Mormon is just such a book of lies. Because there's no historical reality in all of their, their stories. So we cannot conjure up our own ideas, insert them into the Bible. It has to be in the Scripture and stated as such already. And so allegorizing does not fulfill the Old Testament texts, okay? And um, so, by the way, there is a, I guess you would call it a system of interpreting the Bible. It's called the allegorical method, where everything is an allegory. And uh, you, you sit there and you're like, wow, I did not know that, all right? I have a an allegorical commentary in my library on the book of Habakkuk. It's over 700 pages long. I don't sit and read that too much, okay? Because one thought generates another thought, which generates another thought, which generates another thought, which generates another thought. And so you're seven or 12 or 15 thoughts removed from what the Bible said in the first place. And you're like, wow, how did it, woo, I just took 25 minutes of my day to get here? Really? Oh, come on. Well, that's allegorizing. And so you, you can go layers and layers and layers deep, and then you're sitting there thinking, oh, man, I'm a second-rate Christian because I don't see that. Okay? That's the danger in allegory. And so it's not designated as such in the Scripture. All right, so that's one little warning on that. Um, let's go ahead.